Welcome to our Climate Change 101 series, in which we'll explain climate terminology and relevant developments to provide you with a good foundation of the legal climate change space. I'm Mel Debenham, a partner in our Australian Environment Planning and Communities Practice. In this episode, I'll be breaking down climate change in environmental impact assessment. We will cover where environmental impact assessment obligations arise, what kinds of considerations are relevant to climate change and the lexicon and concepts that might be relevant during assessment, closing out on regulatory outcomes and the sorts of conditions and implementation requirements we're seeing. So to start, what is environmental impact assessment or EIA and when can the requirement to undertake EIA arise? EIA is not a new process, certainly not, um, and is not tailored to climate change. Essentially, it involves review of the direct, indirect and cumulative impacts of a project or development on its environmental setting. The definition of environment is very broad and includes all living things, their physical, biological and social context and the interactions between them. It can include a wide range of human related aspects such as aesthetics, culture and heritage and the economic context. So changing climate is obviously relevant across the board. EIA can be mandatory or voluntary in nature. On the voluntary front, business policies may include a commitment to undertake impact assessment of that organisation's activities and then transparency around those impacts through annual, sustainability or other kinds of corporate reporting. Mandatory EIA typically arises through domestic laws that regulate the environment or planning and development. In Australia, there is both state and Commonwealth legislation establishing EIA processes, such as under the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act at a Commonwealth level. Or alternatively, mandatory EIA can arise through financing processes where environmental and social risk frameworks like the Equator Principles or IFC performance standards apply. Climate change considerations usually arise in two contexts, the impact of global warming on the development or project and the impact of the project, typically because of associated greenhouse gas emissions, on climate. In the first context, the assessment is of an external factor, being the effect of climate change on the project and the impacts and risks of that project over its anticipated life. What needs to be assessed will be influenced by the nature of the activities and their particular environmental setting. But it could include aspects like access to water in a drying climate, infrastructure integrity risks associated with sea level rise, climatic changes influencing habitat and distribution of threatened species, and the knock-on impacts for those species in terms of viability and biodiversity, or the increased occurrence of extreme weather events and need for additional contingencies in terms of containment capacity and structural integrity. The aim here is to demonstrate through the assessment process climate resilience and that climate change impacts won't result in unacceptable future impact and risk. Turning now to the second context, which involves the converse considerations, being the effect or contribution of the project and its impacts and risks on global warming. Currently, these considerations most frequently arise for projects that are associated with material greenhouse gas emissions be they coal or gas activities that produce a combustible product, power generation, industrial activities, refining or processing, large-scale mining or extractive industries. 
Assessment requirements will differ depending on the EIA setting, but typically will include quantification of emissions from a scope one, two and three perspective on an annual or a project life basis. Where the project involves producing some kind of product, the emissions intensity of that output may also need to be identified. That emissions baseline will then often be benchmarked against other analogous projects or activities. This allows the relative performance of the project to be assessed. Analysis of available options usually occurs uh, for reducing emissions or improving performance. And generally the focus is on scope one emissions that are within the control of the project and the proponent. Options need to be technically and financially feasible and can be looked at from a design and construction as well as an operational perspective. Cost considerations are relevant here in determining what's reasonable and practicable in the specific circumstances. And finally, the application of the mitigation hierarchy, avoidance, minimisation or management and offsets to then determine the residual level of emissions and overall acceptability of the impact. Depending on the project, there may also be countervailing aspects relevant to include in the assessment that contextualise or balance the predicted level of emissions. These may be concepts like carbon leakage, which is the shift of emissions intensive industries from high mitigation or high regulation to low mitigation, low regulation countries, or the loss of competitiveness and relocation of those emissions intensive industries because of carbon costs or penalties. Market substitution, being there is a market demand for a process or product uh, so that process or product will occur elsewhere, if not here, and that elsewhere being a lower mitigation or lower regulation country. And also, more generally, the role of a particular process or product to decarbonisation or the green economy. For example, mining and processing of battery metals or fossil fuels in ensuring a just transition. Addressing these concepts in EIA often requires great care to ensure that the arguments are objectively substantiated and not merely hypothetical or assumptions. Without rigour, they can undermine an assessment or create greenwashing type risk. To close out, a few final observations on trends for regulatory outcomes of EIA and the sorts of conditions and implementation requirements that you might expect to see. Generally, what we are seeing is a ratcheting up of expectation from regulators. Achieving net zero emissions within a set time frame, often 2050, but sometimes earlier, and in an orderly or linear trajectory is becoming the established baseline. Where net zero was once an aspiration or a target, we are seeing some regulators move towards setting emissions limits across the life of a project to achieve the ultimate outcome, net zero. Getting to net zero often requires a layer cake of measures influenced by the mitigation hierarchy, continual improvement in performance over time and the adoption of new technologies or mitigations when they become available, investment into research of those technologies and mitigations, and then of course offsets through the acquisition and retirement of carbon credits or other carbon capture activities which counterbalance the emissions and overall impact of the project. Overlaying these measures will generally be reporting and auditing obligations to assure regulators, as well as the broader public, of compliance. So that's a wrap on our Climate Change and Environmental Impact Assessment 101.
This is a really dynamic and continually evolving space at present with court-made law, regulatory reform, and in all likelihood, COP26, influencing requirements and the approach of business and regulators alike. Keeping on top of developments, given the pace of change, can be tricky, but the Herbert Smith Freehills COP26 hub, climate change page and blog provide a range of contemporary information that can help. So please check those resources out. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in to the other episodes within our Climate Change 101 series.